Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Today I just want to take us on a little bit of um, a journey that explains basically why this is such a big deal for us. It's um, not just part of our yearly calendar because it's a nice thing to do, um, although I do love Easter eggs and time off, um, but it's something so much deeper than that. Um, It's the foundation of absolutely everything that we believe. So we're going to kick off this morning by reading our passage that comes from the book of Matthew chapter 28 verses 1 to 10 that should come up on the screen behind me as well. This is entitled, Jesus Has Risen. It says, After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So this passage that we've just read is essentially the climax point of the whole story of the Christian faith. Um, Jesus had completed his ministry on earth and the time had now come for him to be crucified and he became obedient to his father's plan to the point of death. He suffers this awful, torturous, unimaginable death. And then three days later, we see his glory begin to seep through the cracks of what looked like a super desolate situation. So Mary Magdalene and another Mary had arrived at Jesus' tomb to finish off the preparation of Jesus' body for burial. So these were really close friends of Jesus. So I imagine they would have been absolutely beside themselves with grief. The man that they'd been following, the man that they trusted he didn't seem to be this glorious saviour that they thought he was all along. And the Romans had seemingly won. What had happened to their promised Messiah? So they'd come to the tomb fully expecting to find Jesus' dead body there in the tomb. And then out of nowhere, there's this great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descends to the place where they're standing. Now, I've never experienced... Um, an earthquake living on this side of the world. We're really fortunate to live in a geographically stable environment in the UK. But when I was living in Central America, I experienced what they call over there um, an earth tremor. And what happens is the ground shakes a little bit and then maybe some pictures fall off the wall and stuff. Um, But for me, this was totally terrifying because I had no idea what was going on. I literally thought it was a second coming or something like that. (laughs) This was no average Sunday for these women. The verse says that the angel of the Lord rolled back the stone of the tomb and sat down on it. 
I'm just trying to picture right now what that must have looked like in front of them. And I just can't. We can't imagine how mind-boggling that would have been for them. It goes on to say that the guards became like dead men. They were so afraid, they completely froze in fear. Now, this feels a bit more like a reaction I can understand, being in the presence of an angel. The body just plays dead when it's that afraid. These Roman soldiers, responsible for guarding the tomb were terrified. The angelic presence made these professional soldiers tremble and faint. Then the angel tells the woman to not be afraid and invites them to go and see the place where Jesus lay in the tomb, proof that he wasn't there. And then a little bit later on, Jesus physically appears to them and it says that they came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Jesus is risen. He's not simply the God of the Old Testament or God made human in the New Testament, performing miracles on earth, and that was it. God lives today, and we, like these women at the tomb of Jesus, are invited to go and see him. Christian writer Dane Ortland said, Christ was not sent, sorry, Christ was sent not to mend wounded people, or wake sleepy people, or advise confused people, or inspire bored people, or spur on lazy people, or educate ignorant people but to raise dead people. I'm struck by how often throughout the Bible God seems to come through quite often at the point of people's deepest pain, when it feels like all hope is lost, when it feels like the ending of the story actually isn't going to be a good one. God comes through time and time again. I'm reminded of a man called Jairus in the New Testament. He was a synagogue leader and had heard about the healings that Jesus was performing and he had a little girl who was just about to die. Um, And he found Jesus out in the street and told him the situation and and asked him to come and heal his daughter. Jesus agrees and then gets held up because he stops to heal someone else. And in that time, Jairus' daughter dies. Can you imagine how Jairus must have been feeling? You said you were going to do this, but you were late and now she's dead. I imagine it would have been somewhat similar to how these women would have been feeling before they saw Jesus alive again. You said you were the son of God, and now you're dead. Hopeless doesn't even begin to describe it. Later on, Jesus arrives at Jairus' house and declares in front of all of the mourners, nope, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, and he raises her from the dead. I'm reminded as well of a man who was crippled and lay on a mat his whole life in front of some healing waters, but could never manage to get into the healing pool because other people would trample on him and get in his way. And he'd lived in this place of desolation, believing that just a few metres in front of him was his cure, but never being able to access it. He lived in hopelessness and pain for years and years, until eventually he had an encounter with Jesus, who told him to get up and walk, and he was healed. In this scenario, in our passage, for these two women, friends of Jesus, all hope was lost. I don't know what kind of loss um, and grief experiences all of us here in the room this morning have had, um, but I'm sure many of us can testify to the fact that it can be so dark to lose someone or to be at your lowest point, your loneliest point, your most hopeless point is a dark place to be. But in the midst of that darkness, Jesus rose. And even as we're still at the beginning of this preach, I just, wanna, um, I just want us to take a moment now to think about what that place of darkness might look, for us, might look like for us at the moment in our lives. Um, was it um, that darkness? What was that darkness that Jesus wants to meet us in this morning? 
So we've seen the play-by-play of what happened in our passage that describes the resurrection of Jesus um, on Easter Sunday. And I want to take on a bit of a journey that will explain why this resurrection was so important. And in short, that is because we've always been in need of a saviour. A year ago today, Connor and I got married, um, and on our wedding day, I wore a really long white veil. Now, traditionally, many brides will wear veils that cover over their faces. Um, I didn't do that, but perhaps a few years ago, that was more commonly done, or kind of in more conservative churches, perhaps that's what some brides choose to do. And when the bride gets up the aisle and stands in front of her husband, he then moves that veil over her head so he can see her face. And this acts as a symbol of the new intimacy between the bride and groom, that they're no longer two separate people, but have become one because of the covenant relationship that they're um, entering into. And there's a really prominent veil symbol that we find in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, In Matthew 27, it says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain that was in the temple that separated the people uh, from what was called the Holy of Holies, a.k.a. God's actual presence, was torn down the middle. And this veil, or this curtain, was based um, off of the veil in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And only the high priest could enter into this space one day a year to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. In the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, it was on Mount Sinai that God made a covenant with his people. God had led the Israelites out of Egypt... He provided literal bread from heaven for them. He'd been faithful to them time and time again, yet they failed him time and time again. God needed a way to be near to his people. So he invites Moses up onto Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments um, to share with the Israelites. He gave them a way to become acceptable and therefore be in relationship with him. And Moses, on coming back down the mountain has a shiny face. He doesn't even realise it, but his face is literally shining from having been in the presence of God. Altogether, God issued the Israelites 613 laws covering every single aspect of human behaviour. Men had to be circumcised, Sabbaths had to be observed, and people had to obey hundreds of dietary, social and hygiene rules. But as you can read about in Exodus, no one could keep so many laws. So to address the people's sins... God set up a system of animal sacrifices in which people would provide cattle, sheep and doves to be killed. I don't know if you've ever felt this way about something that you're trying to achieve in your life. It's as if no matter how hard you try, you just cannot make the mark. You can't reach the target. Sometimes um, our studies, if you're a student, it can make you feel this way. As hard as we, as we study, as, as much time as we put in, we just can't get good grades. Or perhaps it could be um, in a job that we're pouring our heart and soul into and yet the work doesn't feel recognised or the things that we're putting our time to just fail. We can sometimes feel this way in our relationships with God as well. We wake up in the morning, we think to ourselves, today I'm going to be different, today I'm going to pray more, today I'm going to read my Bible Um, or today I'm going to be kinder to that person that grates on me or today I'm going to really listen to God's voice and spend less time looking at Facebook reels. That's a personal struggle for me that I'm going to throw in there. Um, We can find ourselves in these cycles of striving and sometimes for me it's even before I've gotten out of bed in the morning and innately because of the fall of man um, that happened in Genesis we were separate from God. 
We all have this sinful nature that drags us away from who we truly are as sons and daughters of Christ. And that is why we often find ourselves striving to be good enough, striving to be close to God. The Israelites failed time and time again, and God showed himself to be so faithful to them and bringing them out of captivity and providing them with what they needed to survive, and yet still they could not trust that God was enough for them. The Old Covenant was God's way of extending another olive branch to his people. It was his way of having a relationship with them. But this Old Covenant was for a specific place and a specific time, and yet the people couldn't keep to it. And crucially, it isn't enough for us now. And we can feel that, right? We can feel that we're naturally not right with God. I don't know if anyone's ever experienced this. Um, When you go home to your family's house, and sometimes it can take um, just a few hours or maybe a day or two, but quite quickly you can feel this kind of selfish inner child um, come out and we revert back to who we were before we grew up and got mature. We feel it in our quick tempers and our mouthy responses when someone annoys us. We can feel it in our defensiveness and our pride. We can... um, most often feel it in our closest relationships. The way that we interact with our close family and friends often reveals the reality of what's going on inside us. We can feel it in our consistent choice to trust in lesser things and not in God. We can feel it in our apathy, in our lack of action sometimes when we should take action. We can feel it in the world around us, in the pain caused by evil in our world. We need God so much and we always have. I felt this brokenness recently in so many um, other people's situations and circumstances around me that I've heard about. Um, We can feel brokenness all around us and nearly all of the time. And it's because in our humanity, there is brokenness. We're not enough. We can't do it on our own. We can't meet the standard of our holy God. But this is what makes the resurrection of Jesus so beautiful. In the moment when all hope was lost... Jesus conquered death and made a way for us to have direct access to God. No longer was there this curtain that would separate us from God's presence. Sin was dealt with forever. In Ephesians 2 it says, Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Jesus' death and resurrection meant that we no longer have to adhere to loads of rules and regulations of the old covenant. God gave us the greatest gift in that moment, which was himself. Finally, we can see from this passage of the resurrection that our response to what Jesus has done for us is that we must behold him. I wonder if you've ever seen something that you just can't forget. It's kind of etched in your memory. Maybe a beautiful sunrise or watching people in an airport reuniting after long periods of time away. I love people watching those situations. Um, Some things just stick in our brains, don't they? I remember the day my little brother was born so, so clearly. I can remember distinctly the first time I held him. I can remember the smell of the hospital room. And I remember being shocked when he opened his eyes at how blue they were. And in our passage, there are two invitations to go and see Jesus. 
firstly, the angel invites the two women to go and see the place where he lay in the tomb. And then secondly, when Jesus appears to the women, they behold him, they worship him. And then he instructs them to go to Galilee and tell his disciples so that they too will be able to go and see him. When we behold Jesus, we're completely changed. I wonder if um, maybe some of us might be sitting here thinking, I'm not really sure I need to be changed. I'm doing pretty well. I don't really have a massive sin problem. But what happens when we truly begin to behold God, to look at him, is that our hearts begin to be transformed and we see ourselves very differently in comparison to our holy God. And this is not so that we feel a load of shame and guilt, but it's so that God can bring us to this safe place with him where we can receive his mercy and his grace and allow him to transform our lives for the better. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a super, super challenging quote that said, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we're sinners and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. In other words, we don't feel the weight of our sin because of our sin, but actually we will only grasp how deep sin runs in our lives once we see the beauty and the holiness of God, once we fix our eyes on the perfection of Jesus. About a month ago, I decided to take myself off to the Lake District for the day. And if you've never been to the Lake District on a sunny day, then this this needs to be added to your bucket list of things to do before you die. It's absolutely stunning. And so I went to Windermere, and Beth, who's from the Lake District, had recommended a short walk up a hill um, that had some really beautiful views. Now, I'm a more um, kind of a read-my-book-in-a-coffee-shop kind of gal um, over a three-hour hike. So this walk was um, a really good recommendation because it was super short. It only took me 40 minutes to get up to the top. And I was walking through brilliant sunshine and snow, which was glorious. And when I got up to the top, I was absolutely floored by the view up there. And it should come up on the screen behind me. Yeah, there is. Um, I also found this plaque up there that had a quote from a guy called Alfred Wainwright on it. It turns out Alfred Wainwright was a British fell walker, um, a guidebook author and an illustrator who was a Christian. And you probably can't see from the picture on the screen, um, but this is what he famously said when he arrived at the top of this hill that I was on. He said, quite suddenly, we emerged from the shadows of the trees and were on a bare headland, and as though a curtain had dramatically been torn aside, beheld a truly magnificent view. This was truth. God was in heaven that day, and I a humble worshipper. Next to this quote on the plaque, it said, Wayne Wright's description of his first view of the Lakeland Mountains was a view that changed and transformed his life and the lives of tens of thousands of his readers. This guy simply beheld the beauty of God in creation and was reminded again of God's holiness, that God is in heaven and he was simply a worshipper. This image of a a normal guy who loved nature reaching the top of this mountain and being transformed in a moment by beholding what he saw reminded me a bit of the centurion who crucified Jesus. The centurions who oversaw crucifixions would have managed Many, many crucifixions in one day, every single day. So these were pretty hard geezers. You probably have to be quite emotionally out of touch um, and not easily affected by things to be able to do this job. But he stood nearby 
Um, And after having witnessed the brutal murder of God, he was transformed. In an instant, he became aware of his sin and proclaimed, surely this was the Son of God. When we see Jesus, when we look to him, when we focus on who he is, we start to understand our place. We understand the weight of what he did for us and it changes us. In 2 Corinthians it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. If we think back to that analogy of the groom moving back the veil from the bride's face, we are now allowed close like a bride and groom are to God. And when we look into God's face and behold him, we are changed. So what does it mean for us to behold God right now? Jesus hasn't appeared to me physically like he did to Mary and to the disciples after having risen from the dead. Um, If anyone here has had that experience, please do share. Um, It can feel so hard for us to really do this, but we can. For me, beholding God um, is spending time in his presence. It might look like spending time in nature. It might look like practicing meditating on a verse that's all about God's character. It could be praying or just sitting in silence listening for God's voice. We can behold God in conversations with others um, or in a piece of artwork, music or a film. The resurrection of Jesus meant that now God's presence is amongst us. He's in everything. There's nothing we can do about that. He's always with us. But when we pause to take time to look at him, to choose to focus our eyes on him, and make him the main thing as opposed to a background thing, we are being made more into his image. This could be as practical um, for me as, as when I'm going about my day and perhaps I feel anxiety try to kick in. And in that moment, I have a choice to focus on what's making me anxious or I can pause and I can choose to focus my mind on the fact that God is king, God is holy and God is faithful to look after me. What a beautiful promise for us from our King Jesus this Sunday morning that wherever we're at in our spiritual walk, we have the promise of being made new when we choose him. We have the promise of close proximity to him and we have the promise of transformation through him.